There are times, and I'm going to be really honest, this is like, when I am talking to Brian, and that's my husband, just in case you didn't know, and he glazes over. Have you ever seen that look on your husband, if those of you who are married, or even on your children, or sometimes on your friends? It's the glazed look. Like, I'm not here, and I, I'm not really catching any of the words you're saying. I don't even know what I'm doing here or what you're doing here. I, I hate that. When I'm trying to explain something, I'm really excited about something, and everybody looks kind of out of it. Like, I wonder what the special at Macy's is this week. Or the worst, when I used to do devotions for my kids and they would fall asleep. Now, I'm doing it before bedtime. That's, that's what it's about. Or worse yet, I, w- I would fall asleep while I was giving them devotions. That was the bad one. I'll never forget we were in England. It was a Sunday night. Brian was preaching at Calvary Chapel, Westminster, London. And behind me, because I would sit on the front row, and I do that so I'm not distracted by really cute hairstyles, just telling you. At one time I was, and it turned out to be a guy. So that's why I sit in the front. But I could hear this snoring behind me. And it was getting louder and louder. And I'm looking at Brian. And Brian's just, you know, going on and teaching. But he's got like this half smile. And he's just kind of staring over this one area. And I know not to turn around and look at the snore. You know, I I know my church etiquette. I was born into this. But it was getting louder and louder like you know, and going on, you know, longer and longer and louder. And all of a sudden I heard this voice from the back going, you fell asleep during Pulse to Brian, wake up. And, you know, then the snoring kind of ceases. And then pretty soon you hear, and then it's just right back where it was. And Brian said, Cheryl, you think that was bad? I was up front, I'm watching her. And she wakes up and then I see her go, And then totally succumbed to it. And he said, it was, it was humorous. He wanted to laugh. But you know, it's, it's horrible to look at people and to talk to people who are more interested in what's happening on their cell phone and Instagram. I don't know why my head is going this way. Um, more interested in what's going on with their cell phone and Instagram than what you're trying to communicate to them. That's that going on in your life. I hate boring people. I hate feeling like I'm boring people. I hate it when my kids are simply disinterested in what I'm doing and they don't appreciate the work I put into dinner. We're about to have that, let me tell you, a week from next Thursday. I will knock myself being gluten-free, sugar-free, dairy-free for my sugar-free, dairy-free, gluten-free children. And it will be pushed aside on their plate. How many know this feeling? They don't know how much time we've spent in the kitchen, how hot we were because we had two ovens on, how much we don't even like turkey, but we're doing it for them to be thankful. They don't know the sacrifice at Christmas that's coming up too, that, that was put into that gift you're giving them. I, Christmas can turn into a time of un, undervalued and unappreciated gifts to the entitled. 
And I'm just talking about my family. Years ago, I, um, my dad bought my oldest son, he was four at the time, a Robbie robot from Radio Shack. And my son threw that Robbie robot into our Doughboy pool, tearing the cover of the Doughboy pool, which we never got the chance to swim in and we couldn't afford a second cover, and ruining Robbie Robot. And when I said to Char, you just killed Robbie Robot, he said, tho, because he used to lisp, tho, tho what? And I said, tho what? I'll tell you what tho what is. Grandpa bought that for you, tho. I said, Grandpa Chuck bought that for you. So I made up this scenario about Grandpa Chuck not having any money and giving up the ability to eat his dinner just so he could buy Robbie Robot for that little boy, his grandson, that he loved so much. I I made that the heaviest, most tear-jerking story ever until little tears begin to come down his face. And he said, Mommy, I'm praying Robbie Robot's going to live again. And I said, no, honey, you killed Robbie Robot. You murdered him with your own little four-year-old hands. Poor grandpa. Poor grandpa with his last quarter buying Robbie, Robbie Robot. Well, every night that boy of mine started praying that Robbie Robot would live again. And you know, Brian and I had taken him out of the pool. I had pulled him out of the pool with a net going, dun, 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 dun. I laid him on the ground, you know, dun, 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 dun. Well, Brian and I are upstairs sleeping, and we hear, excuse me, did I bump into you? Excuse me, did I bump into you? It's Robbie Robot crashing against our sliding glass door. Char comes running down the hallway. Mind you, it's two o'clock in the morning. It wakes us up. Char comes running into her room at four years old, his hands raised in the air going, Hallelujah, Jesus raised Robbie from the dead. And he did. But I hate when I feel like I am boring people. I FaceTime my little granddaughter, also four, might be an age of entitlement. I FaceTime her. And when I FaceTime her, she's like, where's Barnabas? She wants to talk to the dog. It's like, you've got grandma here. Yes. Where's Barnabas? I want to see Barnabas. It's like, but this is grandma who loves you. Yeah, the old lady. Where's the dog? And then, and then she's like, daddy, can I hang up on grandma? Please, 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 please. Let me press the red button. Let me hang up on grandma, please. So you know what I do? I'm like, please, please, please. I can't wait to press this red button and hang up on Evelyn. Oh, let me do it first. Let me do it first. <laughs> A little bit of her own medicine coming back at her. But you know, when you are just boring your grandchildren, it's a sad, sad day. But you know, it's so hard to reach someone whose senses have been dulled, who have been numbed. When you're trying to reach a drug addict or somebody who's been entitled and spoiled or somebody who's so distracted that they can't listen, they can't see you, somebody who's so self-interested that your interest and your enthusiasm mean nothing to them. 
or people who are addicted to their cell phones and they just can't even put them down or stop texting or stop looking at Instagram or doing tweets or looking at Twitter to just have a conversation with a real live in-person person. Sorry, that's where I began to get on my soapbox. Yet this is too often how we respond to God. This is what we do with God. We tune him out. And he longs to impart to us great truths, great realities, great blessings, great things, but we are numb to it. We are disinterested. We're distracted. We're too immature to really appreciate it, like giving a baby a diamond necklace. They just are going to put it in their mouth and see what it tastes like and teeth on it. We become like Martha in Luke chapter 10, verses 38 through 45, where we value housework above Jesus' presence. And not only do we begin to value the job and the work above Jesus' presence, but it becomes the imminent, the pressing, the most important thing. And we get mad at others who are basking in the presence of Jesus. And then we get mad at Jesus, which is exactly what Martha did. Lord, don't you care? Mary has left me to leave the housework, the work all to me. Don't you care? This is what happens when we are spiritually dull. I hate that feeling. I absolutely hate that feeling. And I have to say, I've had it before. And it's this spiritual numbness where I lack motivation and passion, where worship becomes about songs. Like, oh, I'm like, mm, I don't really like that song. Oh, I like this song. It becomes about the song rather than about saying to the Lord how much I love him and appreciate him. Instead of about an encounter with the Lord. When Bible reading becomes duty. Oh, I've got to go through this many chapters. Oh, let's see. How long will it take me to get through these chapters? Okay, because I've got so much to do today. Or church. Oh, seriously, I have to get dressed. I have to put makeup on. And then I'm going to have to, when I get home, you know, I've had this on Wednesday nights. I'm going to have to floss my teeth, take out my contacts. I'm thinking about church as an impediment to bed. Oh, don't tell me you've never done that. Come on, I don't see you guys on Wednesday night all the time. You know, that spiritual dullness that can set in when fellowship is just one more thing on our to-do list. And prayer is about not that person. They pray the long prayers. Where's that person that says, Lord, bless this food. Let's eat. Amen. When prayer becomes about the time element, when these things become burdensome and we find ourselves checking the clock and measuring it by how much time it's going to take from our schedule, when everything becomes ritual rather than inspirational, becomes duty rather than delight, and it almost feels like clouds coming in and obscuring your eyesight so you're not seeing God's great plans and purposes, like you're Hearing becomes impaired so that you're not hearing God's voice and God's direction and God's promises. That your passion becomes dampened so you're not feeling God's presence. 
and that your joy is stolen so you're not experiencing God's pleasure in these things. I've had that happen to me. As a believer, it's something that can happen to any of us and all of us. Some of you have come up to me, and I won't name names because I can't remember them anyway. But you've said to me, Cheryl, I'm so ashamed. I've lost my passion. I'm not feeling it anymore. I'm reading my Bible, and I'm not feeling it. There used to be this, this passion. And I tell them, you're not alone. You're not alone. There's a remedy. Dullness will keep us from seeing the glory all around us in our circumstances, in our gifts, in our salvation, in our Savior, in our lives. There is glory in your life right now. Can you see it? Can you see it? Can you see the glory even in that prodigal? Can you see the glory even in that hardship? Can you see the glory even in that pain? Can you see the glory in the gifts around you? Can you see the glory in that child? The glory in this time of your life. Again, this dullness will keep us from hearing the voice of the Lord in worship. What we're really saying to the Lord, what we're declaring about the Lord in Bible study, what truths are being proclaimed from the the pulpit in our godly friends. What they're saying to us about what God is doing in their lives. And when God is speaking to us, I've had the Lord speak to me even through non-believers. Through the flight attendant that says, put your oxygen mask on first before you do it to others. It's like, that's the word I was waiting for. I'll tell you some other time. I've had the Lord speak to me through Judge Judy. I kid you not. You see, when you're open and your ears are open, you will hear the Lord speaking to you in many different ways. It will keep us from feeling God's presence with us because God wants us to enliven our spiritual senses. As believers, we are to feel. We are to feel the glory of God's love. We are to feel his joy, to feel his joy. You know, all the feasts, I'm in the Old Testament right now. I've just entered the book of Nehemiah. And all through it, it says, celebrate the feast of the Lord. And it's feasts. It's where we get our word festive because feasts are meant to be festive. And it's all about celebrate and have joy. And Passover was a time where the people were to celebrate their deliverance from Egypt because of the lamb. And because of the Lord. And I was thinking all these thoughts and how we've made communion this dirge. Like, you killed Jesus. Look what you did to Jesus. Look what he had to suffer for you. You terrible, terrible people. Go ahead. Take that. Take that wafer. Drink that grape juice. You sinners. And and we're singing, you died. It hurt. We're bad people. And I thought, you know, I feel like God wants us to celebrate, to say, look what the Lamb of God has done for us. Look at how much he loved us. Look at the promise. Our sins are completely forgiven, removed as far as the east is from the west, and he will remember them no more. Look at the body of Jesus that he says, look, my death became your death. You don't have to die. 
because I died for you. We're to celebrate the Passover. And I was just feeling this so strongly. And we're at communion at the retreat. And I was like, Lord, make this a celebration. Make this a celebration. And Shannon Quintana started to play, Jesus is calling. And there's a pause. And somebody's cell phone rings. Bring. Not that, but the bring. Bring. Why? Because Jesus was calling. And you know what he was saying? Celebrate. And you know what everyone started doing? Celebrating. You couldn't help but laugh. There was no way you could hold it in, especially because it was a holy moment. You had to just break out and celebrate. We miss the joy. In the presence of the Lord is fullness of joy. Fullness. There is no greater joy than when you come into the presence of the God, of, of, of the God, the only God. There is joy. And we just said, there's joy in the Lord. There is joy in the Lord. We are to feel God's joy. We are to feel God's love. We are to feel God's grace and his pleasure. And we are to feel his truth. You know those times when you're like, this is truth. You feel it. You just feel the truth. His attributes are not only to be known, but to be felt. But dullness will keep us from God's greatest gifts. God wants to reveal Jesus to us. Jesus' greatness, his unfathomable compassions for us, his great eternal accomplishments for us, his continual grace to us in his love. He wants to reveal to us the adventure of our own lives, the joy. He wants to reveal to us his grace in giving us the friends we have and the miracles of our lives. But dullness will stagnate our spiritual lives and leave us paralyzed. No spiritual growth, no spiritual insights, no spiritual understanding. People will have to explain things to us. And we'll be going around going, why? Why did God allow this? Why did God allow that? After my dad's death, you know, I wanted to take some time just to mourn myself. I, he was the best daddy in the whole wide world to this little girl. He used to call me sunshine, called me angel. Every time I saw him, every time. And I found myself with the people of God having to go, it's going to be all right. Chuck's in heaven with Jesus. He's not dead. He's in heaven. In fact, I really feel he's hanging around with David right now. He always wanted to meet David. I asked him who the first person he wanted to meet in heaven was. He said it was David and then Paul. And I think that he's with David and he hasn't met Paul yet because he's so busy with David doing slingshots, which was one of his favorite things. Jumping, you know, climbing up mountains, doing everything he ever wanted to do. Feeling his full vigor, his full strength, the eternal youth. But I had to comfort people and nobody was comforting me. I don't mean that as, a, as an insult, but he was my dad. He was more than just a pastor to me, though he was my pastor. He was my dad. But what happened to the people of God that sat under that teaching? They had to be comforted. It's all right. Jesus is still on the throne. Chuck is just closer and seeing it. It's all right. By this time, 
you should be comforting others. By this time, you should be able to take these spiritual truths and give them to others. You should be seeking how you could comfort, how you could explain truth to others rather than always having to be comforted and be told the truth. It's time to grow up spiritually. It's time to take our place. It's time. It's time to leave the boredom with spiritual truth, with the promises of God, saying, I've heard that already. I've already sung that song. No way. It's time to go deeper with the Lord. It's time to get interested in what God is doing in his church, what God is doing in this world, and what God is doing in people's lives. It's time to leave the discontent behind, looking for something more, looking for something else other than Jesus to inspire. You see, this is what dullness will do. It will bore you, make you disinterested, make you discontent, isolate you so that you will want to withdraw from Christians and believers, feel misunderstood, and feel like an outsider when everyone else is excited and invested in. The band Love Song used to get up when I was a child. I remember the band Love Song. And it used to, they used to sing, Hey, have you lost the feeling? Don't you hear the music anymore? Hey, have you tried to listen, but you think you've heard this song before? How can we stop this dullness? How can we stoke the spiritual passion in our lives? You see, spiritual dullness is a reality. And the Hebrew believers that the author was writing to were suffering from spiritual dullness. And because of their spiritual dullness, they were beginning to drift away and they were in jeopardy of losing spiritual ground. As Jesus said in Matthew 13, 12, for whoever has to him, more will be given and he will have abundance. But whoever does not have even what he has will be taken away from him. You know, at 58 years old, which is what I happen to be, even though when I went to vote, the guy says, I hope you don't mind, but I think you look much younger than what your age is. I'm thinking, you're reading my age. What are you doing? Never mind. He said I looked younger. It's all right. Go ahead. Look at my information. Go ahead. Read it all you want. But you know, I'm being told over and over again, use it or lose it. You know how they say that to you when you when you get over 40, they say, you know, you got you to gotta keep working on your muscle strength and on your arms. And, you know, my son-in-law said, mom, that's what he calls me, even though he's only 17 years younger than I am. Mom, you need to work your muscles. You, you got to do it or you'll lose it. And he told me to get five pound weights. And I did. And I set them to the side and I went out and I got four pound weights. So I have I have five pound, four pound, three pound, and the ones I'm using right now are two pound. I figured any weight will do. I told him, you know, I'm doing the two pounds because I have to do reps. But we, we have to keep our muscles active or you lose muscle strength. 
I was, um, I, I can tell that I'm using two pounds because I went to screw these screws in to some Ikea furniture, which is meant to frustrate men and lead them to Jesus. <laughs> and I was just trying to get the thing in. And I was like, okay, it's time to go to the three pound. <laughs> Enough said about that. But these people, their hearts were beginning to harden. And they were thinking of returning to the rules, rituals, temple practices. And this happened because they began to put these things on the same level as Jesus. You see, dullness starts when you put anything, anything. Remember Martha with housework. Anything on the same level as Jesus. When you put any anything, any person at the same level of Jesus. When you put husband or children, or in this case, Moses on the same level as Jesus, or you put the law, what you're doing, your work that you're doing for God on the same level as Jesus. When you put rituals on the same level as Jesus, when you put sacrifices, the things you're giving to God on the same level as Jesus and what he's done for you, or when you put the temple or the church on the same level as Jesus, when you do this, or you put priest or pastor on the same level as Jesus, when you do this, you devaluate Jesus. And when you devaluate Jesus, dullness will set in, or even put your trial. Who is stronger, the trial or Jesus? The trial or Jesus? Jesus stands alone. Whenever we place or substitute anything for Jesus, we replace it or we give it equal value, whether it's a relationship, a ministry, a service, a work, a tithe, a sacrifice, or ourselves, dullness will result. And the author of Hebrews wanted to reveal to these believers the glory, the grandeur, the greatness, the goodness of Jesus. But he was concerned. Concerned that spiritual dullness would keep them from understanding, receiving, embracing the glory, the grandeur, the goodness, and the greatness. Throughout this book of Hebrews, beginning here especially in this chapter 5, we've already heard these great things about Jesus. But now the author is going to pull back the curtain and he's going to give you the proof of Jesus' greatness, grandeur, and goodness. He's going to pull back the curtain and he's going to show you the greatness of Jesus' person, the greatness of his great condensation, condescension, condensation. Yes, he rains down on us. To see the great condescension of Jesus, how great his position in heaven is, and his willingness to humble himself for our sake. To see the greatness of his accomplishment through his suffering in the cross. To see the greatness of what he now offers and gives to us. There is absolutely no one like Jesus. He is the ultimate height priest. So the author begins by outlining the requirements of a high priest in verses one through four. He had to be among men. He had to be a man. He had to be appointed by God. He had to offer gifts and sacrifices for sins. 
He had to be compassionate on the ignorant, those without a knowledge or understanding of God, and on those going astray in order to call them back to God. He needed to understand the weakness of men, so he had to be beset by weakness and know the limits of humanity, what men were capable of doing and what men were incapable of doing so he could make intercession. Because the high priest was human, he had to make an offering first for his own sins and then for the sins of the people. He had to fully associate with the people, fully associate, be one of them so he could intercede for them. We're told that no one could assume this priesthood or take it for themselves. They had to be called by God, even as Aaron was called to it in Exodus 28.1, where God distinguished Aaron and Aaron's sons from all the people of Israel, from all the tribes, the tribe of Levi and in the tribe of Levi, Levi, the sons of Gershom, of the sons of Gershom, it would be Aaron and his sons by name. The author now shows in verses 5 through 10, how Jesus fulfilled all these requirements. Jesus did not presume or take the office of high priest for himself. He was called by God. And this, the author quotes Psalm 2-7, you are my son, today I have begotten you. Now, really quickly, I want to give you just a little background. The author throughout Hebrews, when he uses a quotation, he uses the Septuagint which is the Greek translation of the Hebrew Bible. Your Old Testament, your, your Bible right now, the King James or New King James or HCSB, the NLT, your Bible is, is translated straight from the Hebrew into English. But the Septuagint, again, it was translated in the third century B.C., by 70 to 72 Jewish scholars. They tried to choose six from each tribe. It was commissioned by Ptolemy, who was a ruler in Egypt, descended from one of the generals of Alexander the Great. And it was translated by Alexand uh, in Alexandria, Egypt. And it was translated into the coin or the spoken Greek of that time. So it would be what the New Living Translation is to the King James. The Septuagint would be to the Hebrew Bible. So that's why sometimes when you look at these quotations and you go to where it's drawn from, you're like, wait, it's different. That's why. So we know this about the author of Hebrews. He knew Greek and he had the Septuagint. That's why a lot of people believe this was written by Apollos, who was an Alexandrian Jew. This is just a sideline, and boy, am I so off my notes. But it's so interesting to me. But it was written, um, he knew. And remember how we read in Acts how he could prove from the scriptures eloquently, irresistibly, how Jesus was the Messiah, the Son of God. And so every quotation in Hebrews is from the Septuagint. But what he says here is, you are my son, today I have begotten you. Now, you're saying, doesn't begotten mean I just sired you? I mean, you're my son. It does, but this was the chosen son. So in that day, 
a father, a Hebrew father, even a Roman father, would choose one of his sons to be the heir, to be the one who would take over the family, who would be the one to carry out the father's wishes, the father's desire to carry on the family name, to carry on the family traditions, to carry on the family business, to carry on the family um, battles. You are a priest after the order. I'm sorry. Today I have begotten you. Philip II of Macedonia had many sons, but he chose Alexander, his son, who became Alexander the Great when he was 16 years old. And he publicly had a ceremony where he announced that he had begotten Alexander. And now Alexander would be sent out at 16 as the general over all the troops of Philip II. All the troops of Philip II were now at the disposal of Alexander as he was begotten by the father to go out and fight the battles of Philip II. We know he was absolutely victorious. Later, in 67 AD, 67 AD, Vespasian, who was a general, who was the general in charge of the Holy Land of bringing the Hebrews back into subjection to Rome, he becomes the emperor of Rome. And when he becomes the emperor of Rome, he chooses his son Titus. He had many sons, but he chose Titus in a public ceremony and announced, today I have begotten you. And what he did at that moment was he put all his troops under the jurisdiction and authority of Titus. And Titus went and began to fight the battles of his father and bring all of um, the nations, not just the Jews, but the Egyptians, anyone who was in rebellion, he went, fought against them and brought them under subjection to his father, the emperor in Rome. I say this because I want you to understand that these people understood what it meant that Jesus was the son of God, the begotten. They didn't think because there's this horrific doctrine going around that God is a cosmic child abuser. And I had this man that I was sharing Jesus with down at the beach who said, I don't want to listen to anybody that would kill their child. And I'm like, man, you don't have a clue. Talk about pearls before swine and holy things before dogs. I was you know, getting a little mad. I wanted to say, then go to hell if you want to. Go to hell if you want to. But I didn't. No, the grace and love of Jesus overrode me. But I was like so mad. You know, it's like, don't you understand? This is glorious. This is awesome. Jesus was 33. He didn't go like to the cross with, well, we're going to hear about this. Let's go on. You are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. Now this is a higher order, a holier order. And there, it predates Aaron's appointment. It is an order that Abraham recognized and respected. It is both a royal and priestly order, whereas Aaron's priesthood was limited to priesthood alone. But this is a different order, and we are going to get more into this in chapter 6, and especially in chapter 7. We're just going to explode it. We're going to pound it. But in verse 7, we're told that Jesus was human. See, he had to be taken among men, right? And it says he had days of his flesh. Jesus lived in a human body. We're told that he offered up prayers and supplications. 
And it says vehement cries or strong cries, pleadings, and, and, and battle cries. I mean, this is deep. He wept before God who was able to save him from death. Jesus was fully human and fully God. He had the full human experience. He prayed, he wept, and he had God say no to his prayers. It was important that Jesus pray and say, if it possible, be possible, let this cup pass for me. Because he had to know what it felt like for us when God says no to our prayers. Did you ever think about that? He said no to the Holy Son and said, you must. So that when God says no to us and you must, Jesus understands. He can empathize with us. We're told again in verse 8, he was not exempted from suffering though he was the son of God, that he learned obedience through the things he suffered. That's the Greek word, methano. And it means he increased his knowledge. You see, Jesus as the son of God is God himself. He knew suffering theoretically, but now he knows it experientially. He felt it. It's one thing to talk about it, and it's another thing to experience it. It's the difference between being a heart surgeon and a heart patient. Jesus says the heart surgeon became the heart patient. He went through the school of suffering. He learned obedience through the things he suffered. He felt the whole human experience. He knows the cost of our obedience. And I want you to think of this. The cost of his obedience was death. And the cost of our obedience is life. The cost of his obedience meant bearing the weight of the sin of the world. The cost of our obedience results in freedom from sin. His obedience meant separation from God. And our obedience means reconciliation to God. His obedience meant becoming a curse. So our obedience could result in being blessed And then verse 9, it says, Having been perfected, he became the author of eternal salvation to all who obey. Jesus accomplished and completed his mission. He perfected it. He fulfilled the appointment of high priest. He did everything that was necessary as high priest in bringing us before God, in making atonement for our sins. He is the author, the reason, the cause, the initiator of our salvation. He is the way of our salvation. He is the reason and the means by which anyone who obeys can be saved. And he is eternal. He is always and forever the means of salvation, constant and unchanging. We'll get into more of this in chapter 7, which won't be till next year. Sorry. The author wants to go so much deeper. Well, you could go ahead and do your homework. The author wants to take these Hebrews so much deeper, but he senses that they're glazing over. He senses that they're already dull, but he wants to take them into the glory of Melchizedek for them to see the relation between Melchizedek and the glory of this priesthood and the greatness and the superiority of Jesus' order. These are things that are hard to explain. You have to listen attentively. You have to want to know them. You're going to have to repeat them. You're going to have to think them out. They're going to take time. Because understanding comes by a desire to understand. 
These are things that the believers should be ready to hear and perceive. For though by this time you ought to be teachers, you need someone to teach you again the first principles of the oracles of God. And you have come to need milk, not solid food. These believers were falling so far short of all that God had for them. And not seen in, in their willingness to turn around to the baser things, to go back to the rituals. They did not understand the glory that was theirs in Jesus Christ. And so they were becoming dull. These are people who were dismayed by God's word, ready to argue with God's word, rather than putting themselves under the authority of God's word. It was not that they thought too much about these things, that they thought that they overthought things. And I'll have people say, well, you know, I think I just overthink things when it comes to the Bible. No, no, you don't. You haven't thought it out far enough. I love how the Bible is always telling us to think. You know, Islam does not tell people to think. It says, don't think, don't ask questions. You're not allowed to ask any questions or think it out. But Christianity says, think. God says in Isaiah, come, let us reason. The Bible is always telling us to think. Jesus says, count the cost. Think it out. Think it out. Think it out. If you're dismayed, it's because you haven't gone deep enough. You haven't thought it out enough. Not that you've thought too little about it. Jesus is calling again. There we go. You need to give attention to it. It needs to be processed. It needs to be understood. One of the best questions you can ask yourself as you read is why? It's not a question to be avoided when you come to the Bible. Why? Why did Jesus, why did Jesus only partially heal the blind man and then fully? Why? Oh, when you begin to look at the why, don't be afraid of the why. When you take the time to think it out, to process it, you are going to receive so many glories and so many spiritual insights. But these people needed milk rather than solid food. They needed the basic principles of God's word. Basic principles. How they were born again. That Jesus is the son of God. Why it was that his sacrifice availed. But the author wanted to take them deeper into greater truths, to understanding the incarnation and the Trinity and the rapture and the work of the Holy Spirit and the power of faith. From this point forward, he's going to talk about how Jesus is after the order of Melchizedek, how Jesus is the better covenant, how Jesus is the ultimate sacrifice, how Jesus is the ultimate temple, how Jesus is the power of God, how Jesus is the better promise of God. And he wants to take them so deep because these truths will revolutionize these lives, their lives. These truths will give them the power of faith so that they themselves will be able to have great exploits like those in Hebrews chapter 11. And he says, it's great to have milk. Peter says that we're supposed to be nourished by the sincere milk of the word. But there comes a time to get off the milk and into the meat. For those of you that are vegans, to get off the milk and into the broccoli. It just, there's a time to develop your teeth, to develop your taste buds, 
to know how to appreciate food rather than throwing it, to know how to prepare the meal. But he says, you're still unskilled in the word of righteousness. It's time to become skilled in the word of righteousness. Solid food is for those who are full age, uh, verse 14, or mature, who have their senses exercised. Exercise, there it is. You're lifting those weights of the word to discern both good and evil. In 2 Timothy 2.15, Paul says to Timothy, be diligent to present yourself approved to God, a worker who does not need to be ashamed rightly dividing the word of truth. You see, when you are in the word of God and your senses are sharp, you know where to apply what scripture to what situation. You know how to apply the promise to the trial. You know where to apply the sufficiency of God's grace to the inadequacy of your own humanity. This is what happens when we're skilled in the word of God. It's God's word that matures us. It's God's word that imparts discernment. It's as we use it, we live in it, we apply it, we live by it, that these spiritual senses are developed and we grow to maturity. You see, it's not enough just to have the Bible sitting on a shelf in your house or to carry it around, it must be opened. It must be appreciated. And you must come under the authority of God's word. You can't look at God's word and say, I like this and I don't like this. I want this, I don't want this. We have to put ourselves under the authority of God's word. It's a sacred book. We must say, God, you're the Alpha and the Omega. You know everything. And I know a few things. But my wisdom is so finite. I know 2018, but you know creation to the new world that is coming. You see it all in one glance. I know a few of my thoughts, but you know all my thoughts. I can see a few hearts, but God, you see all hearts and even to the inside of hearts. You know all things. So I come under your authority because you wrote this book knowing all things and you do exactly what I would need today in 2018. God's word must be used, practiced, embraced. It must be allowed to direct our lives and instruct our lives. Like these Hebrew believers, we can become dull. There's a story told of C.H. Spurgeon who was a preacher dynamic preacher, started preaching when he was 15 years old. And by the time he was in his early 20s, he had a huge congregation in London, huge. Never educated in anything but the word of God, but one of the most brilliant men, one of the most prolific writers ever, ever, is C.H. Spurgeon. And they said he was crossing a major street in London, And he was almost being run down by carriages and horses. And he just stopped. And people were observing him because they knew him. And they were watching him just stopped, his eyes closed in the middle of the street, just being barely missed by these carriages. And when he crossed over the other side, some people approached him and said, you know, Pastor Spurgeon, what in the world were you thinking? What were you doing that was so dangerous? Instead of rushing across to get to the other side, he said, I wanted to. 
but I found, I, I felt a cloud come between my Lord and I. And I could not go a step further until that cloud was lifted. You see, Spurgeon began to feel this dullness coming in to his heart and into his mind and into his senses. And he refused to go any further until that dullness was dealt with and he was back in the presence of God, no separation. Spiritual dullness is something that needs to be dealt with because it will keep us from the great truths, the great blessings, the great experience, the great joy of Christianity. What is the remedy? What is the remedy? I told you I'd tell you the remedy. The remedy is to consider Jesus, the greatness of his person, the greatness of his condescension, that he is the great son of God, the beloved of heaven, who left heaven to come to earth, to become a servant, even to the point of death for men. It is to see the greatness of his compassion, of his love for us, to see the greatness of his accomplishment that he has brought about the forgiveness of our sins, the greatness of what he now offers us, reconciliation to God, the holy of holies, that boldness, an empathetic and sympathetic high priest to listen to us. The word of God, living and powerful, and the revelation of who God is. God's word gives us the greatness of Jesus. I have found when dullness sets into my life, I have to stop, just like C.H. Spurgeon. Sometimes I need to change Bible translations and have it afresh. I've told you this before. I'm now in the NIV in my personal devotions, but I teach and study from the New King James. Sometimes I need to go to the New Living Translation. Sometimes I go to the ESV, HCSB. I, I like to feel it refresh. And sometimes if I really want a long, long Bible study, I go to the Amplified. Because it just goes on and on and on, but really blows it up. And it's awesome. But I need to do all I can to get to Jesus and to see Jesus. I shared this with you before. But I stay in the Gospels. Every day, with my Bible reading, I'm in the Gospels because there was a point in my life when I lost sight of Jesus. I lost sight of Jesus. I got, I was in the Old Testament. I was really into the law. You know, it's kind of the time when I wanted to tell that guy, well, then go to hell if you want to because that's what happens when you're in the law. And I had lost sight of the grace and the compassion of Jesus. So I decided I wanted to be in the Gospels every day to see Jesus. Because you know what? And this is where I'm going to end. Some of you are like, thank God. This is where I'm going to end. I don't want to be like Mary and Joseph, who in Luke chapter 2, 41 through 50, were so distracted, so um, busy with duty and with ritual and with obligation, so dull that they did not miss the presence of Jesus for three days. Three days. 
And when they found Jesus, Mary said to him, why have you done this to your father and I? And he says this in effect, why have I done this to you? In other words, who left who? Who lost who? You see, we can go three days out, not even realizing that Jesus is not in our presence. And what did Mary need to do? She needed to look for Jesus. She needed to go back to where she had last seen him. She needed to look for him. And then she needed to observe him and his wisdom and his grandeur and realize that he was about his father's business, that he is the son of God. For some of us, the remedy for spiritual dullness is to say, as the Lord said to the church in Ephesus, go back, remember from whence you are fallen. When was the last time you felt Jesus? When was the last time you were passionate and sharp? Go back. Go back to that place. Maybe it's a portion in the Bible where, oh man, last time I was in this book, Philippians or Hebrews, the Lord spoke to me so strongly. Or the last time I spoke to this woman or this friend, oh, I felt it so passionately. The last time I was down at the beach or I was um, sitting on the grounds of Calvary or it was at this place, I felt it. I was passionate. I was on fire. Maybe it's something you need to start doing again. Oh, the last time or when I used to play the guitar and sing privately to the Lord, or I used to exercise, or I used to take these walks. Oh, the Lord would speak to me. The last time I used to journal while I was doing my Bible. Oh, the Lord used to speak to me. Sisters, it might mean going back. Moses had to approach the burning bush. Samuel had to go back to bed and wait for the Lord to speak to him again. There might need a place that you need to go back to. Mary and Joseph had to go back to Jerusalem, back to the temple, back to that place and find Jesus again. In this study in Hebrews, that's what we need to do. We need to find Jesus and we need to get such a glorious vision of him that everything else in comparison pales. Everything pales to Jesus because spiritual dullness will rob us. And we don't want to be robbed because Jesus has great things for us ahead. Let's pray. Lord, we pray. Oh, Lord, deliver us from spiritual dullness. As every eye is closed, every head is bowed, and, and no one's going to see this confession. If you'd say, Cheryl, I feel that spiritual dullness slipping in, and I don't want it. Will you raise your hand so I can pray for you? Because you're not alone. See, you're not alone. You're not alone. And just admitting it, just confessing it, that's the first step. Lord, I pray for my sisters right now. I pray that you would remove the dullness in the name of Jesus, that Satan would no longer be able to dull and distract. My precious sisters, oh Lord, 
I pray that you would open up their minds, remove the clouds, that they might have a glimpse of Jesus, your glory, your goodness, your grandeur, that they might be filled with the passion for you, that they might be taken further into the deep truths, Lord, that they might receive the power of the Holy Spirit upon their lives and become witnesses, Lord, for Jesus, that you might fill them with faith that the exploits of Hebrews 11 might be manifested in their lives. Oh God, you want to take us deeper, further, and into greater adventure. Oh God, give us hearts that say, I come, I come in Jesus' name. Amen.